Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. There's a popular myth, the 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, killed that. Now there is a tiny kernel of truth to this. A quick glimpse at his inauguration on January 20th, 1961. It is noticeable that he is, besides Vice President Lyndon Johnson and the man he beat for the job, Richard Nixon, surrounded by a sea of top hats. And of course, it goes without saying, these three men represented the New School. Milliners claimed this was the death knell. Men everywhere chose to forego headgear. Hat shops closed across the nation. Careful analysis does reveal a different picture. For one, newspaper articles from as early as 1923 show a growing disdain for hats among youth. Of particular note, World War II had a measurable impact on hat wearing. The Hat Research Foundation. The very existence of a foundation looking into hat research may suggest they were already in trouble. Surveyed male non-hat wearers across the USA to ask them why they no longer wore hats. 19% replied because some bullying drill sergeant yelled at them if they didn't during the war. In civilian life, they no longer had to put up with that kind of hectoring bullshit. The late 1940s and 1950s in general were a time when many could and did push back against the established order and conventions. It was also a time when, for the USA at least, there was plenty of money, lots of jobs to go around. Youth culture, and this may seem strange to say now, was on the rise. And I say youth culture. The term evolutionary psychologist used at this time to examine the lives of those not yet fully fledged adults, but not kids either. But from its coinage in 1944, the word teenager is a far better fit for the point I'm trying to get across. A quick sidebar. The concept of the teenager was one rooted firmly in marketing. High schoolers had newfound freedoms, coming from after school and weekend jobs. Technology was making huge leaps forward in every which direction at the time too. This led to the kids having their own money to buy their own radios and record players for their bedrooms. A combination of the rise of the suburbs in the 1950s necessitating adult car ownership and a sudden glut of new vehicles as pre-war car manufacturers returned to their original line of business led to a teen car culture. Teens with money in their pockets bought up all the old cars. In short, as a new class of consumer arose, music, movies and fashion began reflecting their tastes. End sidebar. As the new class of consumer, the teenagers were now the tastemakers, and they weren't crazy about hats. Rock and roll is a thing this year. Did the rock and rollers wear hats? These new actors like Brando or James Dean. Now Frank Sinatra may have said cock your hats, angles or attitudes once. But even he went bareheaded on his own show in 1960, when he welcomed the new king, Elvis Presley, back after his stint in the army. Elvis, of course, had his magnificent quiff on display. A haircut which arose in the 1950s, in defiance to the earlier short back and sides of the past. A quiff defied anyone to cover it with a stupid hat. 
And finally, it's worth pointing out, hats of a certain kind were once popular because they denoted one of a certain social status. In recent years, hats have become far more ubiquitous, diminishing that status. Now, this is not to say that when Gene Chandler donned a cape, top hat and cane to sing the Duke of Earl in late 1961, people didn't get the implication. In that garb, he was Prince Charming. We'll walk through my dukedom in a paradise we will share. The fact remained, though, anyone could go and buy a top hat and play the Duke of Earl, should they choose. In short, John F. Kennedy was, at most, the final nail in the coffin of the hat makers. All this is to say, the following tale may seem a bit ridiculous now. I think in part that is because we've forgotten the importance of the hat in times past. Today's tale doesn't begin in an American milliner's circa 1961, but in mid-19th century Sicily. It will double back stateside before we're done, however. The island of Sicily has always been exactly the kind of place which breeds cells of local partisans with a deep distrust of authority. In past episodes, namely an episode on Hannibal and a blog post on the Begradus dragon, we've touched upon the way the island was invaded, then ruled by Phoenicians, Greeks, pirates for a little while, Carthaginians, and Romans. That is only the beginning. Byzantium invaded in the 6th century. The Byzantine emperor Justinian using Sicily as a staging post to attempt a reconquest of the Western Roman Empire from the Ostrogoths. The Muslims invaded in the 9th century, bringing lemon, pistachio, and orange trees with them. The Vikings invaded after that. The Normans invaded in the 11th century and brought Count Roger I and his son Roger II, the latter of whom really should get a tale of history and imagination of his own one day. They were ruled for a while by the Holy Roman Empire, and the French Duke Charles I of Anjou. The Spanish colonised them for some time, and finally the French House of Bourbon. This never-ending cycle of colonisation by one group or another led to groups of partisans developing, with the aim of protecting the locals from the next corrupt or cruel invader, and generally harassing whoever was in charge at the time. Take for example in 1282. The Anjou French, having deposed Roger's grandson, Manfred, colonised, then proceeded to treat the locals appallingly. After a Sicilian woman was raped and murdered by a French soldier, the Sicilian Vespers rebelled, killing 4,000 French colonists in retribution. After a long war with the French, they could have won their independence, but chose to put another relative of the Rogers back on the Sicilian throne instead. There is a legend the phrase Morte alla Francia Italia Anelia, deaf to the French as Italy's cry, arose at this time. The phrase later shortened to M-A-F-I-A, Mafia. Now these groups persisted through time, and were always in the background. They were there to join up with Giuseppe Garibaldi's Red Shirts, an army of about a thousand strong, when they landed in Sicily in 1860, hoping to free Sicily from the Bourbons. Two thousand mafiosi lent them their muscle, and were instrumental in the establishment of an Italian nation. A popular play in Italy in 1863, Il Mafiosi di Vicaria, introduced the phrases mafia and mafiosi to the common lexus for Italians. From the 1870s onwards, a power vacuum arose in Sicily. This led to an increase in violent crime, particularly a spate of violent robberies by highwaymen. 
Though the Mafia were responsible for much of their crime, they were also called upon by the King of Italy to bring the bandits under control. This era legitimised Mafia power in Sicily, and laid the foundations for what they became later, criminal overlords, and would lead to the likes of Francesco Cuccia, both mayor of the town of Piana del Greci, a Mafia kingpin, by the 1920s. The 1920s also saw the rise of the man known as Il Duce. Benito Mussolini was born in 1883 to socialist parents. He was named after Benito Juarez, the left-leaning president of Mexico, who took over the nation following the disastrous reign of Emperor Maximilian. Benito himself was a staunch socialist, renowned journalist, and public intellectual, until he had a falling out with the left in 1914. He was reading a lot of Friedrich Nietzsche, particularly Thus Spoke Zarathustra. To Mussolini, God suddenly was dead, morality meaningless. Having fallen down that rabbit hole, he was convinced he himself was an ubermensch, a superman, and just the ubermensch that Italy needed to mould a new society. Gone was any sense of egalitarianism, communal ownership and class warfare, replaced by a cruel, syllogistic, imperialistic, white supremacist style of ultra-nationalism which came to be known as fascism. As a populist politician, he got his foot in the door, backed largely by dissatisfied World War I veterans, who coalesced around him as uh, black shirts. Promising to resurrect the Roman Empire, Mussolini and 30,000 black shirt thugs marched on Rome in October 1922, demanding the government resign and appoint him leader. Now a quick flash forward to 1924, Benito, now a minority leader, stacked the cards in his favour via the Acerbo Law, which replaced proportional representation in elections, with a system which ensured the party with the most votes got two-thirds of the votes by default. As his was now that leading minority, this law gave him carte blanche to rule as he saw fit. This made Il Duce impossible to vote out for the rest of his life. From there on, he went about dismantling democracy, doing away of his enemies, and not unlike Donald Trump, planning a series of public rallies throughout the nation. In May 1924, Benito Mussolini arrived in Piana del Greci with a large security detail. His first port of call was a meeting with Mayor Francesco Cuccia. The two men made small talk till Cuccia leaned towards El Duce and whispered in his ear, You are with me. You are under my protection. What do you need all these cops for? Mussolini was taken aback by this, taking it as impudence he would need protection from a mafiosi. Cuccia felt insulted that Mussolini refused to dismiss his large police escort. The two men parted ways. Cuccia upped the ante, ordering all but a handful of villagers to stay away from the piazza during Mussolini's upcoming speech. Mussolini was left preaching to what is variously described as around 20 village idiots in a largely empty public square. Now this PR disaster might have been swept under the rug, or at the very least isolated to Cuccia, were it not for another incident, in another Sicilian town a few days later. Picture if you will, another piazza, this time full of inquisitive villagers. Get that sense of a carnivalesque, that buzz in the air that you get from large groups of people gathered together for an event. Many of those people were dissatisfied with their lot in life. 
There was no agrarian land reform for these poor farmers, no socialism, no utilitarianism, while under the yoke of their mafia overlords. This was just the fertile ground Mussolini needs to plough, if he ever hopes to outright declare himself dictator. So imagine, if you will, Mussolini, self-styled Ubermensch, stepping out to address this awed crowd in full regalia, topped off with a trademark black fez, worn by himself, of course, and the elite Arditi's shock troops who distinguished themselves in the Great War. A number of Arditi, decked out in their black hats and their black shirts, followed a proto-fascist poet and fellow Ubermensch, Gabriel D'Annunzio, into the Croatian town of Fiume in 1919. They laid claim to that town in the name of something very much like the fascist regime Mussolini is so intent on creating. But that is another tale which we will tell sometime in the future. So there's a hushed silence. Il Duce prepares to rile the crowd up in a hate-filled frenzy. Then some fleet-footed mafiosi skips through the crowd. He dodges past the cops, zips on up to the stairs, hot-foots it up to the podium and swipes Mussolini's hat right off the man's head. Now just imagine the pathos. This alleged strongman left bareheaded in front of this large crowd. The police left dumbstruck as this mobster bolted out of the town square with Mussolini's hat. I imagine a crowd bursting into peals of laughter at this ridiculous man as he stripped of his plumage. This simple act is Emperor's New Clothes stuff. It is something equivalent to throwing a milkshake over, or cracking an egg on the head of a fascist today. Mussolini was furious. On 3rd of January 1925, Benito Mussolini dropped all pretense that Italy was still a democracy. The fascist dictator, his hands already bloodied at this point in the deaths of several prominent socialists, made the eradication of the mafia his new top priority. He gave a local police officer named Cesare Mori the power to do whatever necessary to destroy this age-old society. Mussolini telegrammed Mori, quote, Your Excellency has carte blanche. The authority of the state must absolutely, I repeat, absolutely, be re-established in Sicily. Should the laws currently in effect hinder you, that will be no problem. We shall make new laws. End quote. Mori took this to heart, arresting hundreds of mafiosi for anything from associating with known criminals through to murder. Mayor Cuccia was an early arrest. Cuccia and his brother were both charged with the murder of two socialist activists a decade earlier, and sentenced to lengthy prison terms without so much as a trial. Thousands of mobsters did get their day in court, however, where they were displayed in iron cages for all to see. Under the iron prefects, as Mori came to be known, Reign of Terror. 1,200 mafiosi were jailed on a range of offences, real and imagined. A large number of liberals and leftists in Sicily were also jailed, as suspected mafia. Now this did not bode well across the Atlantic. The United States of America absolutely had some problems of criminal groups from Italy before Mussolini's crackdowns. Black Hand organizations involved largely in shaking down members of their own community for protection money. Most famously, the opera singer Enrico Caruso had been operating since the 1890s. The Provenzanos of New Orleans and the Morellos of New York were leaving murdered opponents in discarded barrels for the public to stumble across well before all this. 
Italian-American detective Joseph Petrosino was sent to Sicily to investigate mob connections between the two countries way back in 1909. However, this mafia witch hunt undoubtedly escalated the growth of the mob in an unprecedented manner. The USA had tightened its borders via the National Origins Act of 1924, but numerous gangsters snuck in regardless. The ferries which ran day trips back and forth from Cuba, a favoured method. To add to this, the USA itself had provided the mob with the perfect pathway these mobsters needed to grow their organisations exponentially. On January 16, 1919, partially of the belief such a law would help reduce poverty, and largely through the rallying of several religious institutions, American politicians ratified the 18th Amendment effectively banning the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcohol in the community. The National Prohibition Act, better known as the Volstead Act, was written to law in October 1919, giving law enforcement the authority to enforce the liquor ban. Many otherwise law-abiding Americans recognized this legislation as idiotic. Organized criminal gangs suddenly had a large market to cater to at considerably less risk than other illegal activities. This was a boom time for the likes of Joseph Bonanno, a 19-year-old Sicilian kid who'd fled Mussolini's purges and snuck into New York via Havana, Cuba. The nephew of the Don of Castellamere del Golfo, Sicily, he found a home in Salvatore Maranzano's crime family. These rapidly gentrifying criminals would eventually expand to a point where they went to war with one another over their territories. The Castellamarese War of 1930-1931. A lot of the moustache peats, as they were called, the more old-school mobsters, who didn't believe in doing business with Irish or Jewish gangsters, were wiped out. This left the so-called Young Turks, Bonanno included, free to organise the five families we all know today when we think of the mob. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog, historyandimagination.com. Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination. <laughs>